Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move. And here's your need to know. Executive Economics, President Biden signs orders on food aid and the minimum wage. Border block, the UK considers tough new travel measures. And Olympics on or off, the government, uh, the Japanese government denies reports that they're cancelled. It's Friday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. It certainly feels like a Friday, and it is, and it's another day where it's all about the power of the presidential pen. President Biden will sign executive orders focused on delivering food aid to millions of Americans and a $15 an hour minimum wage for federal workers and contractors. Executive orders... Well, they're the easy part. Getting congressional buy-in for his $1.9 trillion relief bill is much harder. Republican Susan Collins, a moderate, is the latest senator to question the size of the price tag. Moody's chief economist Mark Zandi is predicting just half of this sum will get done. We'll discuss all the details with him shortly. There are encouraging signs, though, too, in the U.S. COVID fight. Dr. Anthony Fauci says cases may be finally plateauing. Hospitalizations, meanwhile, are falling. More than one million Americans are now being vaccinated each day. But of course, it's the short term challenges versus the medium to longer term tug of war. And for now, at least as far as the markets are concerned, those short term challenges dominate stocks, seeing siding and seeing further consolidation after a record run. That is a reality, too, as you can see for much of Europe. New data Today, showing Eurozone business activity falling to two-month lows. Lockdowns across the continent hitting the services sector increasingly hard. It's a similar story if we take a look at Asia, too. Hong Kong shares falling more than 1.5% on reports that tens of thousands of people there could also soon be placed under lockdown. As we keep saying on the show, you can't fully heal the economy until the control of the virus is found. And in the absence of that, you have to buy the recovery. Let's get to the drivers, because in the coming hours, President Biden, as I've mentioned, will sign two new executive orders to ease the burden on struggling Americans. One increases food aid to the most vulnerable, such as children reliant on free school meals. The other aims to increase the minimum wage for federal workers to $15 an hour. John Harwood joins us now. John, great to have you with us. I I do like the way that President Biden has framed this. He's talked about rescue and then he's talked about recovery and rebuilding and when i look at these executive orders these are well and truly about rescue for the most vulnerable in society that are suffering at this moment they are for sure julia although i think we need to be realistic about the impact of these orders the order about on food aid uh, will make some material difference for some people recalculating for example the way food stamp benefits or snap uh, as we call them 
uh, are calculated. Uh, that is a, a formula that hasn't been updated in a while, and the updating of the formula, the so-called thrifty food plan, which is uh, food stamp benefits are based on, will raise by a modest amount, maybe 15%, uh, what uh, some families get in food aid. The uh, order on the federal minimum wage does not raise the fe uh, federal minimum wage for uh, contractors. It does begin the process of exploring uh, what federal contractors are now paying their workers, trying to figure out what the impact would be if they uh, ultimately do implement that minimum for federal contractors. And, of course, that's meant to uh, show the way uh, toward a federal uh, minimum wage nationally for uh, all businesses of $15 an hour. But we're a long way from those things happening. These are largely about uh, the president's desire to show some momentum toward his economic goals while he waits for that big uh, rescue package that you talked about from Congress. That's really the key, getting that, uh, that package or some facsimile of that package through the Congress to put money directly uh, in the hands of workers to uh, uh, bolster their unemployment benefits, to uh, fund uh, vaccine uh, distribution and, and get shots into people's arms, which is the key thing to getting the economy really back on track. And half of that money, a good chunk of it, at least, is money for state and local governments. It's also the $1,400 checks, the bump up to the $600 that was agreed in back in December, John. Contentious issues. And despite calls for unity in Congress, it looks like that's illusory at this stage. This price tag seemingly looking like it's going to come down. Yes, it will come down. Uh, but I think uh, President Biden is willing to let this process play out a while longer uh, to try to see if he can get 60 votes, meaning 10 Republican votes uh, for this package. That uh, state and local aid you mentioned is critical, as you know, for the economic recovery because states had their revenues uh, hemorrhage as a result of lockdowns during coronavirus. And if they don't get some aid, uh, they're going to have to lay off people. And that's going to deepen the economic pain that Americans are feeling. Uh, state and local aid is something that Republicans, who tend to be the anti-government party, have resisted. Uh, Joe Biden is putting that squarely on the table. It does have bipartisan support among governors, uh, people like Larry Hogan of Maryland, who last year was the co-chair of the National Governors Association. He had been calling consistently for that aid. So there is some support for it. Uh, and I suspect that at the end, uh, President Biden will get some of that aid, maybe not all of it, but some of it. Yeah, we'll have to see. John, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. To the UK now, where the UK is considering closing borders to foreign travellers as Britain approaches 95,000 deaths from COVID-19, with fatalities in the past week averaging more than 1,000 per day. Only four other nations have recorded more coronavirus deaths. That's according to data from Johns Hopkins. Scott McLean joins us now. Scott, good to have you with us. We are expecting to hear from the government, I believe, later today. But what can you tell us about how seriously they are considering these firmer border closures? Yeah, so certainly we'll find out more today when uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson holds a, a press conference in just a couple of hours from now. It's important to remember, though, right now, every single person, Julia, who comes into the UK from abroad has to not only be tested negative before they get on their flight, but they also have to quarantine for 10 days once they get here. This morning, though, a British cabinet secretary said on Sky News that the government is considering a plan which would expand border regulations to essentially bar foreign visitors from coming in at all. All of this is in the name of trying to keep new variants that they're finding abroad 
from getting into the UK. Because remember, this country is already dealing with its own uh, mutated strain of the virus that spreads more easily. And so the last thing that they need here is something that either spreads even easier or is even resistant to a vaccine. The good news, though, is that a new preprint study out of the UK this week showed that uh, it just added to the growing pile of evidence, really, that suggests that uh, these vaccines will, in fact, be effective even on this mutated UK variant of the virus. This study looked particularly at the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine and found that it was effective, though a little bit less so in those 80-plus, though. I did speak with the author by phone yesterday who said that that should not be alarming because virus effectiveness generally starts to wane a little bit as we get into our later years, Julia. Yes, and I will say that variant identified in the UK. There will be viewers watching this going, hang on a second, it didn't necessarily come from the UK. Um, Scott, talk to me about the situation there, because there is debate about the relative number of lives lost, about the number of cases, about the hospitalizations. What is the UK seeing? What can you tell me about the data? Yeah, you really have to strain a little bit to find signs that things are getting better here, Julia. As you mentioned in your intro, well over a thousand people are dying on average per day from COVID-19. You still have hospitals that are jam-packed and you also have a st study that suggests that uh, at best, the infection rate is actually remaining flat. That contradicts the government's data, which seems to show infections going down, though the government only actually tests people who have coronavirus symptoms. This study tested almost 150,000 people randomly selected from across the country earlier this month. Now, London is the worst affected area in the country. The head of the National Health Service uh, in London said that while ICUs are undoubtedly filling up, the, the beds that have patients in acute care or the regular beds or even just emergency calls in general are starting to drop. So that is the glimmer of hope here that we're seeing. The government, though, is also trying to get tougher with new fines on people who attend large gatherings just to try to do everything it can to try to halt this new variant. Here's what the head of the health service in London said about those people. Listen. This is the biggest health emergency to face this country since the Second World War. For me and for my colleagues in the NHS, breaking the rules in the way that's been described today is like switching on a light in the middle of a blackout in the Blitz. It doesn't just put you at risk in your house, it puts your whole street and the whole of your community at risk. So Julia, those fines that are being proposed actually total more than a thousand US dollars equivalent. They won't come into effect until Monday. That is too late to do anything about the 400 or so people who attended an ultra-Orthodox Jewish wedding in London just yesterday. Police said that many people fled when officers showed up. Uh, leaders in the Jewish community in London were quick to condemn that wedding. Uh, only a handful of people, though, were actually fined in that case, Julia. Yeah, I'm all in favor of fines. We heard from uh, Taiwan right early on in the crisis using monster fines to uh, get people to stay at home into quarantine. Yep, I'm all for it. But you have to support them if they can't go to work too. Scott, great to have you with us. Thank you. Scott McLean. And later this hour, we'll be talking about how well the vaccines are being rolled out in the UK and lessons that are being learned. So don't miss that. To Japan now, where Olympic officials are scrambling to deny reports that the Tokyo Olympic Games may be cancelled. The International Olympic Committee tells CNN the story is, quote, categorically untrue. Selena Wang 
joins us now from Tokyo. Selena, great to have you with us. I have to say, it feels like a bit of a reality check when we look at what's going on, not only around the world, but of course in Japan too. What more do we know? Julia, that's right. That strong reaction we heard was in response to a Times of London report stating that the Japanese government has privately concluded that the Olympic Games will have to be canceled this year. This is according to a senior Japanese government official. This person was unnamed. Now, in response, we saw an aggressive rebuttal from the Japanese government, the prime minister reaffirming that he is committed to hosting these games. So at least publicly, there's this unwavering confidence that the games will go ahead. But as you say, the reality is grim here. Tokyo is in a state of emergency. Japan is dealing with a severe surge in COVID-19 cases. Foreigners are currently banned from coming into Japan. Not to mention Japan is behind many countries in the vaccine rollout, not expected to even start until next month. I also spoke to the longest serving member of the IOC, Dick Pound, who told me he's not 100% sure these games will go on as planned. Furthermore, there is growing public opposition here. Nearly 80% of people in Japan now think these games should be canceled or further postponed. That's according to a recent survey by national broadcaster NHK. And Julia, when I'm speaking to people on the ground here, they largely feel that there is, of course, hope that the games will go on, but it's not very realistic at this point. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? The fear of bringing the virus in. You have to wonder what the uh, athletes involved are also thinking at this stage too, despite all the, the planning that they've done. As planned was the key phrase there. What might the games look like if they do end up taking place? Well, if these games do actually end up moving forward, they will look nothing like we've seen before. There are still many questions that remain unanswered. Specifically, can international fans come? Can any fans come at all? The officials have said that they will make that decision by the springtime. We so far also know that the opening and closing ceremonies are going to be simplified. They're going to be pared back. Athletes are going to be asked to limit their mixing and mingling in the Olympic Village. Athletes will also be asked to come and leave within a specific window around their competition time. So really trying to enforce these COVID precautions and social distancing. But I just want to reemphasize again that if these games are actually canceled, this would be a sort of catastrophic scenario for Japan from an economic perspective and from loss of face. Japan has already sunk more than $25 billion into preparing for these games. And Japan wants to be the first country to host the Olympics after the coronavirus pandemic. The prime minister has said that he hopes Japan can host the Olympics to show the world humanity's victory over the pandemic. The question is, we're probably not going to get to that point in time. Julia? Yeah, beacon of light for all, but time's slipping away. Selena Wang, great to have you with us there in Tokyo. Thank you. All right, still to come here on First Move, build back better. If President Biden wants to realize his campaign slogan, he's going to need to get the country's manufacturers on board. We've got the head of the National Industry Group on with us next to talk about what that's going to take and high velocity vaccinations. The UK approved a vaccine first and its rollouts fast. We're joined by one of the architects of the country's strategy. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move Live from New York, where US stocks look set to take a Biden breather. A lower open on tap after the S&P and the Nasdaq closed at record highs yesterday. IBM 
Not helping here, Big Blue set to fall some 8% after reporting a fourth consecutive quarterly revenue drop. Weak sales in the company's all-important cloud division, a problem too. However, some clouds may be clearing for the Biden economic team. The Senate could confirm Janet Yellen as Treasury Secretary today. Yellen, of course, made a full-throated plea for the president's $1.9 trillion emergency aid plan during her confirmation hearings Tuesday. The president hoped to win bipartisan support for the bill, but unity on stimulus, at least, remains elusive. Mark Zandi joins us now. He's the chief economist at Moody's Analytics. Mark, great to have you with us. You think around half gets done. Yeah, I do. Uh, $1.9 trillion is a very large package. And given that the Senate is still uh, very evenly split, I mean, it's favors the Democrats, but it's about as it's as even as it possibly can get. I think it'll be uh, difficult to get that full package through. So I'm expecting something about half that size, which would still be sizable, still, uh, I think, go a long way to helping the economy get to the other side of the pandemic. So it would do a lot of good. But $1.9 trillion is probably a bridge too far. I mean, on top of the $900 billion that they managed to agree as well in, in December, so we have to add that in. The fact is, though, and you did the analysis on what that $1.9 trillion could do for the U.S. economy, and it was pretty astonishing to me. 8% real GDP growth this year, 4% potentially or near to GDP growth next year, and actually around 7.5 million of the 10 million jobs that we remain down in the U.S. economy since the pandemic began could also be recovered this year. I mean, that would be an astonishing recovery. Yeah, that would be fantastic. I mean, I, I do think uh, all, ultimately we do need uh, a lot more fiscal support. So let's just say we get half the $1.9 trillion in this next package. I, I do expect the Biden administration to come back later this summer, fall, with another package. That one will be a bit different. Hopefully we're on the other side of the pandemic, and that'll be not just about uh, relief, but that'll be about uh, getting the economy back to full employment, getting those jobs back, getting unemployment back down closer to 4%. And if we get all of that, uh, and, and I think that we have a fighting uh, shot to do that, then yeah, I think this economy can come roaring back. And I think we can get back to a place we all feel pretty good about by, let's say, the end of 2022, early 2023, a couple of years from now. Wow, but we're still talking years, of course. I like the way, and the president did this too, he talked about rescue and then recovery. There's, there's two separate things here. There's trying to hold up those that have been most impacted by the, the pandemic. And then there's how do we rebuild and, and rebuild better and tackle some of the inequalities. On the rescue side, you've looked at effective bang for buck in terms of where you put the money and then it has the most impact and nutritional assistance, um, unemployment insurance. These have some of the greatest impact, I'm assuming, because they get spent, they get used. Yeah, Julie, that's exactly right. They have the biggest bang for the buck because they go to the folks that are most distressed, you know, folks that are unemployed. Uh, people are, are having a hard time putting food on their uh, uh, family's tables people who face uh, eviction from their homes because they haven't been able to make, make rent payments. Uh, so uh, getting money uh, to those uh, people uh, is uh, particularly efficacious. It really, uh, they, they, have, they need it. Uh, as soon as they get the, the check, they're gonna go out and they're gonna use it because uh, they have no other choice. And right up there, aid to state and local governments, which we know is a contentious point. And one of the things that you're saying actually um, may be lost, at least in the first part of this package, if they do break it down in, into two pieces. Surely that's going to impact things like vaccine rollout as well and how quickly we bring these jobs back. It's sort of self-harm. 
Yeah, I mean, aid to state and local governments, that's very tried and true fiscal support. We we do this every recession because, you know, as you know, state and local governments have budget constraints. They're, they're not able to go out and borrow money to fund their uh, daily operations. So they have no choice if revenues are down, and they're obviously down because of the pandemic. They have to cut jobs, and that's teachers and fire and police, emergency, res- emergency responders, folks we need, you know, in any time, but particularly in crisis, they cut programs. Uh, they cut uh, services, and you know these are uh, again to folks that are uh, under a lot of distress. So helping state and local governments very, very important, but very politically contentious, as you know. Uh, there, there's a, a great deal of, uh, of pushback, uh, particularly from uh, Republican senators. So politically, that's going to be tough to get through. I think they'll get some of it through, but uh, not nearly as much as they are hoping uh, to get through, at least what they proposed. So we're not going to get our eight percent real GDP growth this year if we don't get it done. What's your base case, Mark? Well, I, I do expect we'll get a, it should be a good year. Of course, I'm assuming that uh, the vaccine, vaccination rollout does kick into a higher gear here. I think with uh, President Biden focused on this and putting more resources to it, he's got good people running uh, the, uh, the rollout now. I think we should uh, be able to uh, vaccinate at least half the American population as we uh, get to Memorial Day early summer. If, if we stick to that script and we do get that fiscal rescue and support that I'm anticipating, I expect we'll get uh, GDP growth this year about 5%, about the same next year. And we'll get back to full employment. That's a 4%-ish unemployment rate by early 2023. So it's a long road ahead, Julia. But uh, fortunately, we're going down that road now and at a much faster pace than we were you know, just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, we need to make a concerted effort. Mark, great to have you with us. Mark Sandy, the chief economist at Moody's Analytics. Now, exactly to Mark's point there, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the chief medical advisor to President Biden, told CNN he believes the U.S. will do better than the president's goal of 100 million vaccinations in 100 days. You know, I mean, obviously you want to do as best as you possibly can. I'd like it to be a lot more. The goal was set, but you don't want to get fixated on was that an undershoot or an overshoot. You go for 100 million over 100 days. If we do better than that, which I personally think we likely will, then great. I just don't want to get fixated because I saw that yesterday that there was that back and forth between that. We're just going to go for it for as much as you possibly can. When you set a goal, if you do better than the goal, That's terrific. I hope we do. CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen joins us now. Great to have you with us. I do feel this is the art of expectation management. I was looking at some of the numbers and I believe the U.S. averaged 940,000 vaccinations per day last week. So this does look unambitious. I don't think that's a word. Lacking in ambition. There we go. Compared to what we're already doing. It's Friday. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I think that there probably are discussions in the in the in the Biden administration. Gee, do we sort of shoot for the moon here and maybe fall short, or do we kind of name a number that we think is uh, relatively easy to do and go beyond it? I, I think there those conversations are happening. But I think, as Dr. Fauci said, the main thing here is just to do as many as you possibly can. And obviously, the U.S. needs to ramp up. There have been problems with not with getting the vaccine where it needs to be, but some vaccine is frankly kind of sitting around getting those shots into arms. There's the other piece of that is manufacturing. Um, there, you know, th- this is a tough vaccine to manufacture. Uh, this is not sort of your normal vaccine. And there's a lot of nitty gritty details that the Biden administration needs to delve into to make sure that manufacturing uh, ramps up. Julia? 
yeah, I mean, there's the supplies, there's the actually distributing the vaccines and then getting them into people's arms. There's also willingness to accept a vaccine. Fascinating to see some data from Walgreens this morning saying that up to 80 percent of long term care facility workers have declined the vaccine. Elizabeth, what can you tell us about this? That's that's right, Julia. Julia, of all the steps you just named, making the vaccine, getting it out, the hardest part, I think, is is going to be this vaccine hesitancy. I mean, if we just take these long-term care facility, these nursing home workers, as a snapshot, as a microcosm of American society, that or a certain sector of American society, if up to 80% of them are saying no, that's really a problem. That means that we need a good vaccine education program. You need people talking about why this is good, why it's safe, get trusted voices in various communities to talk about it. And, you know, we, you, Julia, you and I have been talking about this really since last spring. It's been well known. Chelsea Clinton has talked about this. Others have talked about it. And it never quite happened. There is one that is uh, in the planning stages. And hopefully that will get out soon. And hopefully that will help. Yeah, there's a great deal of scepticism. You have to wonder whether as they see more and more people get vaccinated, as time passes, they get a little bit more comfortable Mm -hmm. with a lack Mm -hmm. of side effects, perhaps that these people will come on board. But it doesn't get more vulnerable than that. And still people are choosing not to take it. Elizabeth Cohen, great to have you with us. Thank you. All right. The Market Open is next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running for the last trading day of the week. And as expected, a softer open and with concerns over a Washington stimulus stall. We've heard that once or twice before. It's looking increasingly likely that the Biden team will have to scale back its emergency aid plans in the face of Republican resistance. We should hear more about stimulus chances later in the day when senators meet to vote on Janet Yellen's nomination as Treasury Secretary. Now, the risk-off mood reflected in the oil markets, too. I'm just taking a look. Both Brent and U.S. crude down by more than 2%. Bond yields also a little bit softer as well. Weak numbers from the Eurozone show the extent of the global economic crisis. Business activity there, the index falling to a two-month low. Manufacturing activity actually fell to its weakest level in seven months. Now, the U.S. National Association of Manufacturers has welcomed President Biden, calling it a time for healing. The industry group represents 13 million U.S. jobs across 15,000 companies and calls on the president to focus on U.S. jobs, on wages and investment. Joining us now is Jay Timmons, president and CEO of the National Association of Manufacturers. Jay, great to have you with us. How can the manufacturing sector help promote this healing Well, first and foremost, we are laser focused, like the Biden administration, on literally healing our country through a very aggressive uh, response to the COVID pandemic, something we have not seen here in this country for the last year. And we're very excited to work in partnership with the Biden administration to get this under control. So you think about what manufacturers contribute to the effort. We make the PPE, we make the medical supplies. We are certainly manufacturing the vaccines and all of the components that go into that. Now our job is to work with the administration to get shots in arms so we can get this under control. And we've been actually working directly with them since the day they were uh, declared the the victor of the uh, presidential contest. So we look forward to continuing that partnership. 
Jay, would use of the Defence Production Act here to coordinate that response and a greater control, I think, at the federal level rather than it just being a greater responsibility for the states help even at this moment? So we've been disappointed over the past several months that there has not been a coordinated effort, including uh, no plan for distribution of the vaccine, as we've seen. Um, that is that is certainly getting under control now under the leadership of Jeff Zients, who we're very pleased is, is heading up the COVID response. The Defense Production Act, uh, which you referenced, is something that can be used to uh, to create a partnership between the private sector and the government to deal with really critical issues. You know, we are the arsenal of democracy, manufacturing is. We are now the, ma- we are now the arsenal of health in the United States. Through a strategic and cooperative use of the Defense Production Act, we can ramp up production of PPE, medical supplies, and the vaccine. And so we look forward to working with the Biden administration to do exactly that. And we've, we've spoken to them and their goal of course, is to expand the availability of all of those things, but they want to do so in a way that is cooperative rather than using DPA as a weapon, which we saw over the past year. We, we need to use it in a cooperative way that benefits manufacturing and benefits the people of this country. But just to be clear, Jay, you can already see that vaccine distribution is going to be improved as a result of the positioning, the conversations that are already being had. Absolutely. I mean, let's face it, it was a low bar, right? So, so we've been very, we've been very uh, pleased with the work of the new administration. I mean, they've only been there for 36 hours and they have ramped up the focus on distribution of the vaccine and getting shots in arms as quickly as possible. It, it really is a new day for America. And I think we can all be, uh, feel very, very confident that this administration has a plan or will be rolling out a plan to get this done in a very expeditious manner. It's the only way we're going to heal this country, as Dr. Fauci said yesterday. And so uh, we're, we're working as hard as we can as manufacturers alongside of the Biden administration to get it done. Jay, it has been an incredibly challenging time as, as manufacturers across the country have battled with demand issues. We already had the situation with tariffs, of course, with um, Chinese goods in particular. The president this morning signing an executive order to try and lift the minimum wage for federal workers and for contractors, or at least laying the path. But he has talked about having a national minimum wage of of $15. It's currently $7.25. What impact would that have on the manufacturing sector and particularly for the smaller businesses? Can they afford a $15 minimum wage even if workers need it? So that's a great question, Julia, because uh, it really depends on where you are in this country and what the standard of living is. So for manufacturers overall, I mean, quite candidly, uh, our wage base is usually much, much higher than what the president and others are proposing for a, for a standard federal minimum wage. But I think the real question is, how does it affect the broader economy? So for instance, I'm from the Midwest. What might be applicable in the Midwest for a higher standard of living may be completely different in, say, Northern California. So I think as the administration rolls out their plan for a minimum wage, I think they have to be very careful to take into account the differences in various areas of our country so that they don't have unintended consequences that do, as you kind of kind of uh, suggest, could actually cost jobs in the long run. We need to do this or they need to do this in a very smart and um, 
strategic way so that they don't harm businesses' ability to grow and compete in this country. So not in favor of a federal $15 minimum wage, Jay, just to be clear. Well, I'd like to see what the plan, look, I, again, I've, I, I understand all of the pressures on a new administration. They've been in office 36 hours. Let's just see what they plan to roll out. Let's see if they have differentiation uh, between various uh, economic zones in this country. Um, I'd like to see what their thoughts are. I don't think it's fair at this point to judge something that hasn't been proposed. Mm. I like the idea that President Biden's brought that is building back better, stronger. From a manufacturing perspective, what's critical here? Because again, manufacturers in this country have had to deal with a shift in digitization, e-commerce. Is that part of what would help and be instrumental in helping short-term 5G infrastructure? What would you like to see, Jay? Well, infrastructure is clearly a priority for the National Association of Manufacturers. It's been something that we've been uh, pushing for many years. Our, our uh, building to win proposal lays out how we can create jobs and how we can improve the United States through a very targeted um, and robust investment in infrastructure. You bring up 5G. Clearly, for manufacturers, we, have, we, are, we are grappling with the digitization of uh, of our processes and manufacturing 4.0 uh, we need that type of investment in america but we also need kind of traditional investment but president biden uh i think is trying to model his administration after the roosevelt administration because of all the many crises we find ourselves dealing with think about what the roosevelt administration was able to do with the wpa programs and and kind of that beginning it didn't happen until the eisenhower administration but the beginning of a national um, network of, of transportation. We have 55,000 bridges in this country that are structurally deficient. That, that's, that's not the America that I think we, we think of as the strong and resilient country that we all love. So, so we need to really get serious about this. And we've got a very strong proposal in place. We look forward to working with the Biden administration to enact as many of those proposals as we can. It's such a great point. Infrastructure spending doesn't have to be new builds. If that's complicated, it can upgrade the infrastructure that we already have. And it's so important. Jay Timmons, great to have you with us. Sir. Thank you, the president and the CEO of the National Association of Manufacturers. All right. After the break, ambitious targets to vaccinate the most vulnerable in Britain. A key figure in the battle is next. Don't go away. Welcome back to First Move. In Britain, cinemas like this one and mosques are being converted into vaccination centres. The target is to vaccinate 14 million people by the middle of February. Now, just bear in mind, the UK population is nearly 67 million people. So far, around 8 in 100 have had the shot. Professor Anthony Harnden is a Deputy Chair of the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation in the UK and joins us now. Professor, fantastic to have you on the show. It's clearly a government target. How confident are you, based on what you're seeing, that that target will be met? Well, I think, I think it's, this is a monumentous national effort in the UK. Mm. We made a, a really, really good start. We've immunised uh, five million uh, individuals in the at-risk groups with their first dose of the vaccine. Um, the Prime Minister set a target of us immunising all four top priority groups by mid-February, which is 13 million people and also, of course, includes those that are most vulnerable and those that are most at risk. So our first four priority groups, which are basically the over 70s, 
care home residents, frontline health care and social care workers include about 88% of all hospitalizations and deaths in the UK. So if we can get to this um, target group by mid by mid February, then we will we will start to see in the weeks to come after that. And of course, the immunisation doesn't kick in for a couple of days. We will start to see a sharp fall off in deaths and hospitalizations in the UK. So I, I, I am very optimistic. What's the greatest challenge that you're facing at this moment when you look at trying to get people in? As you said, you're, you're basically at this stage and the decision has been made by the government to give vaccinations to those most at risk of dying. What's been the greatest challenge so far? Well, of course, one has to remember that these are an elder, very elderly population, a lot of them, that we're immunising at the moment. So there are challenges. There's been initial challenges with the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, which had difficult transport and storage difficulties. And so we weren't able to get that out as quickly as we would like to to care home residents. Uh, and their and their carers who, who have been disproportionately affected by this pandemic, um, but actually, as the when the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine came online, we were able to reach those care homes and reach those elderly housebound. Uh, and of course, as we move down the cohorts in terms of age, it becomes a little bit easier because people are more mobile; they they can get to the surgery easily um, and um, be immunised, and and so the whole thing becomes a little bit easier the further we go. And of course, the other thing is like with any any mass immunisation programme like this, with a massive logistical exercise, you get better as you, as you go along in it. Mm. And, and, you know, as the weeks roll on, we're getting better at delivering these immunisations. The, the teams are becoming more familiar with it, the routine. Um, capacities increase the government are working hard at increasing mass vaccination centers so capacities increase the the whole supply chains become a little bit smoother so everything should work better the more experience that we get at it but i think it's been a great start professor Handen, how concerned are you about using this vaccination or for people that may be watching in the uk and saying with this variant that's been identified in the UK, is this vaccine still okay, even if it's a little bit efficacious? And the other question I think that people are having, and it's being talked about sort of behind the scenes, is is it okay for someone to get perhaps a shot of a Moderna vaccine and a shot of a Pfizer vaccine and combine the two? Where do you stand on on both of those two things? Well, let me take the questions in sequence. The question mm. about variant, from the data that we've looked at so far on JCV, and it is very early, this vac- the vaccines that we've delivered so far seem to be protective against the, the, the variant strains which are circulating in the UK at the moment. Of course, that doesn't mean to say we shouldn't be cautious about this, because certainly the Brazilian Amazonian strain and the South African strain are different varieties altogether. And and um, have no information on whether they will be susceptible to the vaccine at the moment. So we we are very cautious about that. But we're confident that the with the strains circulating in the UK at the moment, they are vac- they are sensitive to these vaccines. Um, now the second question is an interesting question. We we on JCVI have given a very strong steer that you should receive the same vaccine for the second dose as the first dose. However, 
Um, there may be exceptional circumstances where that vaccine isn't available or for whatever reason the individual can't get hold of it, in which case it's better to have a second vaccine of a different type than, than no vaccine at all. Now, there are studies going on in the UK at the moment about mixed vaccine schedules. Theoretically, there should be no reason why you couldn't mix these vaccines because even though the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines are a different technology than the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine, they all act against the spike protein, inducing immunity against the spike protein of the virus. So there seems no theoretical reason why you couldn't mix. But our advice at the moment, until we get further information, would be to keep to the same vaccine type for the second dose as the first dose wherever possible. Professor Hunt, and I'm going to put you on the spot and I apologise for this, but just based on your knowledge and understanding, which is clearly far greater than um, most of ours, there's been a discussion as well about the possibility of closing the borders due to concerns about some of these variants. And as you mentioned, we don't have the data yet, the science to understand whether these vaccines are efficacious enough on Brazilian, South African identified variants. Based on that, would you be in favour of closing the borders to protect the British people? Well, clearly that, that's a political decision outside mm. my, uh, of but my pay grade. But from the point of view but, of the but, science? But, but, but you know, the, these viruses are a live threat. These, and, and we will... The, the Brazilian and the South African viruses will not be the only new variants we see. This virus mutates quite quickly and we will see new variants emerging all over the world, I suspect. And, and so we'll have to get to used to this, to, to, mm. to actually used to new variants and how we deal with them and how we deal with them in the vaccination process. It may be in the future that we do have to edit these vaccines or, or, or tweak them a little bit so that they became susceptible, so that the, the new variants are susceptible to the uh, pr protection from the vaccination. And it may be that actually we're going to live in a world where we have to have an annual coronavirus vaccination, which is, which is edited to the type of the variant strains which are predominant within, within the world at that time, much as we do with the influenza immunisation each year. Mm. So, so, so yes, these, these viruses at the moment are a real danger. And until we get our population vaccinated, um, when we'll be in a much, much better position, I, I think that we need to be very, very cautious as a country about um, potential transmission from these other parts of the world. Yeah. Professor Anthony Harden, thank you so much for joining us, sir, and we look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you for all the work that you're doing, too. All right, we're going to take a break here. Coming up on First Move, semiconductor giant Intel reporting record annual sales, but why some investors continue to worry? That's next. back to the show. Shares of Intel are lower after its incoming CEO's comments on chip production. Pat Gelsinger said that by 2023, the majority of Intel's products will still be manufactured internally. The company is slowly moving away from making all its chips in-house as well as designing them. Intel was forced to rush out its quarterly results yesterday after potentially unauthorized access to its earnings report. Paula Monica joins us now. That's always uncomfortable, uh, Paul, so we can talk about that. But I feel like the financials here, and they beat on the top and bottom lines, belie what's been an incredibly challenging year, whether it's sort of Apple dumping them for their chips or being pushed by activists. It's been a tough one. 
Yeah, Intel obviously has had a challenging uh, 2020, and I think that was the reason why the company pushed Bob Swan, uh, who hasn't been CEO for that long, to retire and have now brought in Pat Gelsinger, formerly of uh, uh, VMware and also an ex-Intel uh, you know, executive as well, to return to Intel and try and restore this company to its former glory. Intel clearly is facing a challenge from smaller rivals that aren't that much smaller. I mean, NVIDIA now has a market value that's worth more than Intel, and AMD has done a phenomenal job of increasing its market share under uh, the leadership of Lisa Su as CEO. So I really think that Intel is going to try and do everything it can to get back in the good graces of Wall Street, as well as customers who are increasingly finding that other chips are just as attractive, if not more so, for their products. And that's the challenge. I mean, the, the CEO also said, look, we're uh, an, a national asset, crucial for the United States at a time when we've seen chip making shift to Asia as well. But the problem is the competition here, whether it's NVIDIA or AMD, is incredibly fierce. It's where do you position yourselves? Yeah, exactly. I think that Intel can only play the national security card for so long, especially <laughs> now that we're in a different political environment where we presumably will have uh, a little bit uh, less of a toxic relationship with China, for example. So I think that uh, there will be more pressure from activists, from other shareholders for Intel to ship some of its production to Chinese chip manufacturers because it will cut costs, make things more efficient for Intel. And obviously they need that shot in the arm because you just look at Intel stock over um, you know, the past couple of years versus AMD and NVIDIA. And that's the bottom line, what investors care about. AMD and NVIDIA have done much better than Intel. If they hadn't yeah. been, then Bob Swan probably would still be CEO. Yeah, we wouldn't have had a swan song. Um, the PC business, of course, has sort of supported them this year in light of COVID, but it's a lower margin business as well. So, um, yeah, plenty of challenges. At least the incoming CEO, I mean, he was there for three decades, I think, so he knows the business. Exactly. And yeah, like I was about to say, they definitely need more in mobile, which they're trying to do. But uh, I think they just need to get be become an even bigger player in the mobile device market. Absolutely. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. All right. That's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. I'm Julia Chastley. Stay safe. Have a great weekend. And we'll see you next week. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.